Let's turn to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. We're continuing our journey through the book of Luke. Um, and it will actually take a pause after this Sunday. So I will preach this Sunday, and then Trevor's preaching next Sunday, and Joshua the Sunday after that. I've got that right now. I had that wrong for a little bit, but that's correct. Um, as our family prepares for a baby to show up, hopefully sometime soon. Um, and I look encouraged to hear from, from um, Trevor and Joshua. But for now, we're in Luke 19. We'll look at verses 28 through 44. This morning, I want to read the text uh, right off the bat. Um, my, my hope this morning, as as I was meditating on this passage and thinking about what God would have us to to see here and to to learn here, um, is that we would just get a picture of King Jesus. Um, it's been a, a thing that Luke has been bringing out that that Christ is Lord. That's what he's presented at. He's he's presented as the the Savior of the world, the Savior even of the Gentiles. But he's also presented as, as Lord, that we, that we come to him as Savior and as Lord and as, as King. And that's something that we've been drawing out, especially recently. And I think here in, in this chapter that it's, it's one of these unique times where the, the veil is sort of peeled back and we see exactly who Jesus is. We see him in his glory. We see him in his majesty. We see him as the Lord, as the King. So I want us to get a picture of that. That's my hope this morning. So look with me at Luke 19, and I'll begin reading in verse 28 and read through verse 44. It says, And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the coat, the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their coats, their, their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This passage marks the the culmination of what's called the travel narrative in Luke. It's a bridge of sorts, and it it bridges from Jesus' journey to Jerusalem 
to his entrance into Jerusalem um, and, and, and all that's going to happen in chapters 20 through, through 24. It's the final week of Jesus' life is what the rest of the book of Luke has to, to deal with. And so in chapters 20 and 24, we're going to see the, the opposition to Jesus that arose in Jerusalem. We're going to see um, the passion narrative as it describes his betrayal, his, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, and then finally his resurrection in chapter 24. But at this point in the Gospel of Luke, th- this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. This is the moment that, that Luke has been building to. You know, we've all had moments like that, haven't we? Uh, events that we've just been waiting for forever. Something you, you've longed to, to, to go to or to, to be at. Maybe it was a, you know, a concert. You got tickets for, you know, your favorite concert or your favorite show. And finally, you know, you got it marked on the calendar and the day shows up and you're there and the lights dim and you're just, this is what I've been waiting for, you know. Or, or maybe it's, it's a longer period of time. Maybe it was your high school graduation. Finally, I'm done with this. Or, or your college graduation. You slogged through that and man, the day has finally come and I am, I am rejoicing. I'm so excited. I've been preparing for this day. Maybe it's a, a visitor or maybe you're making a visit. You're going on, on vacation or someone's coming to see you and you're, you're just waiting. And finally the day comes, this day of expectation and it shows up. And in, in this section of Luke, the, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is that event. It's the one that Luke has been pushing toward, and it's what we've been waiting for, is for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem. And it's as exciting as we might imagine. But uniquely, there's also this hint of sadness as we see Jesus weeping as he enters into this city. Luke has shown us throughout the, the gospel that Jesus was focused on making his way to Jerusalem. So this is his destination. It's his destiny. It's where he's, he's going all the way back in chapter 9, if you can think back that far. Back in chapter 9 and verses 51 and 53, Luke tells us that Jesus had set his face with determination to go to Jerusalem. That was his goal. That was where he was heading. And so in our studies, we've, we've traveled with Jesus since that moment. We've heard his, his teaching. We've seen all the, the miracles that he's done along this path towards Jerusalem. We've been continually reminded that this is his destination. Even as soon as, 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 as quick ago as in uh, chapter 18, it says that taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he speaks of his, of his betrayal and arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is what we've been waiting for. And, and now in this moment, Luke, as it were, slows down the narrative and we start to meditate on this last week of Jesus' life. It's a week that was marked by the celebration of, of the Passover. So the Passover, when the, when the Jews would remember, when they would commemorate their delivery from slavery in Egypt, you remember that story from the Old Testament? The Jewish people would all make their journey to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And we find here that, that Jerusalem is, is almost visible for Jesus. It says he's drawing near to, to Bethpage and to, to Bethany. And in, in my mind's eye, he's, he's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And it's, so Jerusalem is just on the other side. It's, it's, it's just almost within view as he draws near to these cities. There would have been other travelers making the same sort of trip heading to Jerusalem. Everyone's streaming into Jerusalem for this feast. He goes to Bethany, it says there. We know Bethany. You probably have heard of Bethany. It's a familiar place. 
because of, of one particular family. Do you remember Martha and Mary, two sisters, and their brother Lazarus? They lived in, in Bethany. We met Martha and Mary earlier in the book of Luke, um, where, um, where, where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. You remember this? And, and Martha is busy with the preparations, and Jesus uses that time of instruction. Another more familiar story is, is in John, John 11. It's, it's unique to John, where he is in Bethany and he greets Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And the story you remember is, is of Lazarus becoming extremely sick, all the way to the point of actually dying before Jesus got there. And, and, and four days after he has, has passed, Jesus shows up. And, and Martha and Mary are weeping. Jesus, why didn't you come earlier? You could have saved him. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not perish. And, and in those days, he, right before he's entering in Jerusalem, that's when he's in Bethany at this, this moment. And he stands before that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And you remember that scene where he comes wrapped in the grave clothes. He comes hopping out, as it were, and has been risen from the dead. And, and that, that image, that picture, that, that moment in Bethany proclaims that He is the resurrection and life. He is, he is the King. You know, opinions about Jesus in that time that were, were, were varied up to that point. And, and Jesus has been squelching. Remember this whole messianic secret? He performs a miracle and then He tells everyone to be quiet. Don't tell anyone about it. He even silences the demons. They start saying, you are the Son of God. And He says, don't tell anyone that. He heals people and says, now don't say anything to anyone. But slowly, Jesus is allowing his identity as Messiah to be seen more and more clearly. Because up to that moment, he's trying to squelch it because he desires he has things he needs to accomplish. But now he knows that the ultimate thing he needs to accomplish is coming. And so he allows the secret, as it were, to come out. And in this moment, everyone has an opinion about Jesus. And it's usually on one side or the other. The people that are surrounding him, they either want to kill him or they want to crown him as the king. And the, the crowd is completely divided. It's come to this boiling point. And that, that scene with Mary and Martha and Lazarus happens. And then immediately following that in John 12, Mary, Lazarus' sister. You remember Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and learned from him just before Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. You remember what she does? It's the thing that Jesus says she'll always be remembered for. She broke that, that, that jar of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. And wiped his feet with her hair. It was something that you only do for a king. And, and just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this is exactly what is happening. Now, we get all that context just to say that this moment is perfectly right for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem. I mean, he has set things up perfectly. It's perfectly orchestrated by God the Father and by Jesus himself. Jesus came into the world, Galatians tells us, when? At the fullness of time. Right at the perfect time Jesus enters the world. And right at the perfect time he's going to enter into Jerusalem, just so that, as Romans 5 says, he can die for our salvation at just the right time. Everything is perfectly planned as he gets ready to enter into Jerusalem. So how's he going to enter Jerusalem? How's he going to walk into the city? He may have just sort of walked through with all the other pilgrims into any gate, any particular gate, didn't really matter. He could have just gone into the city. Maybe because of all of this controversy, he goes sort of incognito, you know. You might imagine Jesus with some big cloak with a hood, sort of going in through the gate so that no one recognizes. Maybe he can sort of sneak in and 
and not, you know, there'd be no controversy. I think he did that at, at one feast, at one of the Passover feasts, before everything was ready. He sort of snuck in. But not in this moment. In this moment, his glory is, is on full display in this final week of his life. He he's walks into the city, and he does it in a public way that proclaims that he is the king. We continue to, to look at this this narrative, and throughout all the Gospels we see Jesus is in complete control. He's fully aware, aware of who he is. He's fully aware of the hearts of all men, the Gospels tell us. And, and with all that knowledge, he tells his disciples, guys, I want you to go into a village ahead of us, and, and you're going to find a colt there. It's a young colt. It's a colt that no one has ridden on up to this point, and I want you to take that colt, untie it, and bring it here to me. And if anyone says to you, hey, what are you doing? Untying that colt, just tell them that the Lord needs it. Well, of course, someone's going to ask, what are you doing? You know, I mean, two, two strangers from out of town, they walk in, they just help themselves to the first colt they see. You know, I mean, that would be strange. Maybe you've had that feeling like the disciples would have had of, of doing something that you know is, is right, that you have permission to do, you're allowed to do it, but for some reason it looks really fishy, you know. And so you feel awkward doing I'm allowed to do this, but I feel really bad doing it. I, for a summer, I helped the guy. We um, did clean-outs of repossessed homes. So we'd show up at these houses, and, and more or less we would literally break into the homes and then start hauling things out of them. And the neighbors always thought, what in the world are these guys doing? And we had some of them approach us. Who are you guys? And you have to show them paperwork. We're allowed to do this. And that's sort of what's going on here. He's gonna, they're going to go and untie this colt and just sort of take it. It's, it's legal. It's right. It's what Jesus told them to do, but it seems weird. So they go in and they find the colt. And, and just like Jesus said might happen, the, you know, the owners of the colt come out on their front porch and say, hey, what are you guys doing? That's my colt. And they say what Jesus told them to say, the Lord has need of it. And that was all that was needed. Maybe it was a, a, a password of sorts that those folks knew. It's hard to know exactly. Is this, is this a miracle? Does Jesus foresee this cult and know that it's there? And, and so is this some sort of prophetic miracle? Or is it something that Jesus had prearranged? That, that he knew these folks? They were disciples of his and he made sure that he had this cult ready to go? It's hard to say, and it, it really, it, it would not be a real profitable use of your time to try to figure out exactly what's going on. I think the point, rather, is, is that Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows that this colt is there, and he knows what this colt represents, and he knows that if he's going to ride on this colt, it's going to be a blatant claim that he is the Messiah, and that he is the king. He knows what he's doing. It's this idea, he's not being, he's not being forced into this. Someone doesn't bring him in the cult and say, why don't you get on this, Jesus, and we'll enthrone you as king. Because they wanted to do that very often. It says in the Gospels, they were ready to, to force him to be king. Jesus is never forced to do anything. And in fact, he has no need of anything. So it's interesting, he says, tell them the Lord needs it. It's his. A cult is his. He owns that cult. And he says, Go get it. And it's just this idea that he is initiating this. He is the one that's in control. He knows exactly what he is doing, and he knows exactly what this means. And maybe you're wondering, well, what in the world does that mean? Who really cares that he's riding on a colt into Jerusalem? Why is that a big deal? Surely other people rode, coats, rode, rode colts into Jerusalem. In fact, usually when people are, were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would not ride an animal in. They would stop and they would take their time. It was sort of this uh, preparing themselves to enter into Jerusalem. So it was unique that he was on this coal. 
The imagery here is of a, a colt that has never been ridden on. It's a colt that's consecrated for a specific purpose, even as the Passover lambs were, were lambs that had never done any work. They were spotless and pure. Matthew ties this act specifically to a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. This is what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's from that prophecy that we assume that this is this is a, this colt is a donkey. The word colt could mean a horse or or a donkey, a young donkey, and it, this is a, a donkey. It's not it's not a horse. The donkey symbolizes humility. Jesus is not coming as a king that will ruthlessly reign over his people. That's what someone coming on a horse would look like. But rather, he's coming with grace. He's coming with humility. A conquering king comes on a stallion, but Jesus comes on a donkey because he's come to bring peace. That's why he's entering into Jerusalem. There's echoes here too of, of Solomon, the great King Solomon, riding on King David's mule in First Kings chapter one. He's he's placed on King David's mule, and the people crown Solomon as king. Jesus, though, is the king of kings. He's the king in the line of King David. He's the promised seed of David. He's the one that's going to to reign on David's throne as the fulfillment of God's covenant to David. And he's even a restoration of the days before there were kings in Israel. You, you remember that the people wanted a king selfishly. That we want to be like the other nations. We want a king like them. And God says, fine, you can have a king, not realizing all the evil that the kings would bring to them. And God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, they're not this desire for a king. It's not a rejection of you, Samuel. They are rejecting me as their king. And now it's as if there's a restoration of that, that God is riding on a donkey into the city to be restored as the king of Israel, as the king of Jerusalem. The, the picture of this ride is, is painted vividly in verses 35 through 38. Again, Luke is, is slowing down, as it were. We see the disciples, they remove their coats, maybe other garments. They place it on the colt to form a, a saddle of, of sorts. And as Jesus is, is marching towards Jerusalem, all the people, all the, the, this company of disciples, they start to lay down their coats. They create this red carpet, as it were, for the donkey and for Jesus to walk on. If you can picture that, that scene. The, the king, Jesus, he's coming in humility, but, but the people are all paying him homage. They are, they are humbling themselves before him. They are recognizing who he is. And all the while, he's getting closer and he's getting closer to Jerusalem. It says in verse 37, he's drawing near. He's on his way down the Mount of Olives. He's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He's come from the east side of the Mount of Olives to the top, and now he's coming down. And if you know your geography of, of Israel at all, he's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's going to enter into the Kidron Valley, and then he's going to come up on the east side of Jerusalem. And you always go up to Jerusalem because it's up in elevation from everything else. And he's, he's heading up, and he's going to head up into the eastern gate of the city. The, the Mount of Olives may be a, a, a recalling of, of a prophecy in Ezekiel 11. You remember when, when the children of Israel are, are deported into Babylon, that the glory leaves the temple. And, and in Ezekiel, it says it went to the mountains east of Jerusalem. This would be the Mount of Olives. And it's as if the, the glory of God was, right, was resting over the Mount of Olives outside of the temple. 
And there has to be some sense in which it's as if Jesus is bringing the glory of God back into the temple. And Ezekiel talks about how when it happens, it will come through the eastern gate. He will enter back through into this gate. And Jesus is now fulfilling this, at least in part, as he comes into Jerusalem. You can, you can see this picture, as it were. Jesus on the Mount of Olives descending this valley, heading towards Jerusalem. And, and the, the site, the city is, is now in view, and the, the temple is now in view, and, and the people see this, and they just, the disciples, they just erupt in praise to Jesus, and in praise to God. They rejoice. They are filled with joys. It says they, they lift up their voices with a loud shout. A, a loud voice. And it says they, they lift up their voices for all the mighty works that they had seen. Think about all that these disciples had witnessed Jesus say and do. And they, and now he's, he's entering into Jerusalem, this, this moment they've all been waiting for. And they, they don't fully understand what's going on, but they know something amazing is happening. And they lift up their voices for all the amazing things that Jesus had done. They, they exalt him as, as the king. He's, he's the king. He's the king over creation. They, they think back to all that he had done, that, that with a word he, he calmed the, the ocean, he calmed the seas as they were out there. Who is this king? He's, he's, the, he's the king over demons. He, he reigns over all the powers of darkness. The temptations of Satan could do nothing to stop him. And all the demons just, they fled at his name. He's the king over all disease. Just think about all the countless people who were healed by Jesus. He reigns over all disease. There's nothing that can stand in his way. The, the lame would walk and lepers are cleansed. And, and, and blind people are made to see. But it's not just de- disease, right? He's the king over death. He speaks to a little girl who had just died. And she raises from the dead. He, he meets a woman, a grieving mother, who's carrying her son out of the city. And he touches that funeral casket and he tells the son to rise and he, he comes back from the dead. They lift up praise. They enthrone him. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the one who provides and makes full. He's, he's the one who the Father has, has spoken from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You picture that at, at both the, the baptism of Jesus, and then later the transfiguration of Jesus. And even now it's as if the Father is saying, this is my Son. They recognize Jesus. They see that He's, he's greater than all the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's, he's greater than Elijah. He's, he's much greater than Jonah. He's even greater than, than Solomon. He's greater than David himself, and He's coming in as the King. They exalt Him as the King of Kings. This, this, is, this is our King. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is who Jesus is. Luke wrote this so that we would see the majesty of our King Jesus. And that in seeing that, we would enthrone Him in our own lives and say, if that's who the King is, then He can run my life. He can do whatever He wants. Behold Jesus. He's the King of the universe. He's the Lord of creation. He's the, he's the Son of God. He's... King above all kings. He's the fulfillment of everything that we've been waiting for. He's the satisfaction of every desire, every longing that we have. And our response at seeing who Jesus is should be just like this crowd. 
some sort of shout of loud rejoicing at who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And, and that's what happens in light of all that Jesus had done, in light of all that Jesus was, they erupt in this song of praise from Psalm 118.26, and they say, Blessed, and this is where they change it, Blessed, it, it reads in Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say, Blessed is what? The King. The King Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is King Jesus. Blessed be Jesus, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Rescuer of His people. May Jesus be enthroned. May He be lifted up as King because He is this promised seed of David. He's the promised seed of of Genesis 3.15 and He's entering into Jerusalem now to crush the head of Satan, to kill the curse of sin for everyone who would repent and believe. This is... What a picture. But Luke not only takes us back to the Old Testament, he even takes us back to the birth announcement of Jesus. Do those words look familiar to you? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They, they, the, the crowd that day echoes the praises of the angels that rang in the ears of the shepherds. You remember what they said? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those on whom His favor rests. But we're reminded then, we're taken back to those birth narratives. And you, you can read that song of Mary and the song of Zechariah about Jesus as Messiah. You can read the words of Simeon and the words of Anna in the temple that speak of who he is and what he's coming to accomplish. And all of that, the, the people in the crowd suddenly see that he is the son of David. He is the Messiah King. And they witness this and they, they shout praises to Jesus as King. I think it's interesting. He says, peace in heaven. The angel said what? Peace on earth. It's unique. What's the point here? I think the point is that Jesus is bringing peace with with heaven. He's not bringing peace on earth. You remember this confusion about him ushering in the kingdom and throwing out the Romans? He's not bringing peace on earth now. He's bringing peace with heaven He was coming to make peace between God and men. He's coming at the Passover as the Passover lamb. He's coming ready to to lay down his life to appease the wrath of God. Very soon in Jerusalem, lambs will be slaughtered all over the place in commemoration of what had happened at the Passover. And they will slaughter all these lambs to remember that night when the angel of death was going to pass over. And God said, if you kill the lamb and you put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, then when the angel of death comes over, he will see the blood of the lamb. He will accept the sacrifice of that lamb and he will not kill the firstborn that are in your house. And Jesus now comes to make peace with heaven. So that when he, the lamb of God, sheds his blood, when the angel of death, when the wrath of God comes against us for our sin, we are saved and we do not face his judgment. Jesus enters Jerusalem to make peace with God on our behalf, to take the full force of the wrath of God for our sin. Because our sin is rebellion against King Jesus. Those who rebel against the king pay for such rebellion with their life. You remember what happens to the rebel citizens in the last chapter we looked at, the last passage we looked at? They are slaughtered before the king. But Jesus enters Jerusalem to make peace. And in dying on the cross, he takes the wrath of God. And he makes it possible for us to know peace with heaven. 
if there's any doubt, you know, if you think, well, maybe you're drawing some of that out. Is that really what Jesus is proclaiming? You can always tell what's going on by the Pharisees' reaction. And the Pharisees in the crowd, what do they say? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. They're exalting you as Messiah, Jesus. And so Jesus says, oh yeah, you're right, maybe they should be quiet. (laughs) What does he say? He says, not on this day. Not today, guys. On this day, if they were quiet, then you'd start hearing these rocks shout out about who I am. Today is not a day for silence. Today is a day for loud praise. The worship of Jesus, it reveals the heart of the Pharisees. Worship has a way of doing that, doesn't it? The worship of Jesus reveals those that hate Jesus. And and these Pharisees say with the wicked citizens of the previous parable, they say, we don't want this man to reign over us. We don't want Jesus to be king. They reject him as king. And this is, in fact, the majority opinion of all of Jerusalem. In fact, it's the majority opinion of the world even today. But in Jerusalem that day, that's why Jesus draws near. And in verse 41, this day of loud rejoicing, you can see everyone rejoicing around Jesus, screaming and yelling his praises for all that he had done. And what does verse 41 say? As he drew near and saw the city, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps over the city. There's this loud exuberance, and yet Jesus, you see him riding on this donkey, and he is weeping over the city. And he says, would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, Jerusalem, that you could see who I am. He says, but it's hidden from your eyes. You, You are blind to who I am. You are not recognizing what I am coming to do. I'm coming to bring peace and you are blind to it. This was supposed to be a day of rejoicing for the, for the whole city. But in that, that seed of, of the words of the Pharisees, he knows that he's entering the city and he will be rejected. He will be crucified. He knows what is coming. And he says, if you would just have in this moment seen who I was, you would forestall all the, the heartache that is coming. He speaks of the destruction of the temple in, in AD 70. He talks about how the enemies are going to come and surround the city and tear it down to the ground. Not one stone will be left upon the other. And this is a picture even of, of now, how as we speak of Jesus as king, there are those who reject him and say, we don't want this man to be king. Stop saying that. Stop saying that, that he is the king. As we said last week, though, we're in this time of waiting. There was this period of opportunity for acceptance, and Jerusalem rejects Jesus, and so judgment comes. But now we are again, we are in this this waiting period, this time when there is opportunity to turn and to come to Christ and to to know the peace with heaven that He is He is offering. He's enter, because there's there's this reality that remember what we saw last time. Jesus will return. He's coming back. He's coming back not to just to Jerusalem, but he's coming back to this world. What's it look like when he comes the next time? Does he come riding on a donkey? Does he come to bring peace? In one sense, yes. But this is what Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. It says, no donkey. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. 
and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That just reminds me of that crowd that day, doesn't it? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. What's the name? King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes to make peace and he's rejected and destruction comes to Jerusalem. But we continue this song of that day. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We, ha- we still have that song to sing. To say that Jesus should be exalted as king here and now. And, and if you don't do it now, he will not come on a donkey. He will come on a white horse to judge all people. And those who have not put their faith in him, those who have not repented from their sin and made peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ, there will be nothing but judgment. And so now we are, as it were, still a part of this triumphal entry. That's that's what Paul tells us, doesn't he? In 2 Corinthians, he says that we are a part of this, that we are speaking forth who Jesus is, and the words that we say are mean different things for different people. He says, but thanks be to God, this is 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance, the smell of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. We exalt Jesus as king. And those words mean death and judgment to some. But they mean life and peace to others. And our response when we look and we see people, their eyes are hidden from the truth that Jesus is king. We must respond like Jesus. What does he do? He weeps. He weeps. We should weep like Jesus. For those who have not seen this king, I I mean, if, if you are a believer here today and you see this picture of Jesus clearly, of the kind of king that he is, we all say, why would we not, why would you not bow your knee to this king? Why would you not give your whole life to this king? And, and yet there are people who are blind and they say, we don't want this man to reign over us. And our response should be that we weep. Oh, that you would, that you would submit to him, that you would bow your knee and see who he is. We should weep. But I think the, the thing I want us to step away from that I want us to walk away with is that we we should rejoice like this crowd at who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but I don't often shout loudly (laughs) for what Christ has done and for all the mighty works he has done and for who he is. And I think there are these moments where Luke peels back the curtain, as it were, and we see Jesus in all of his glory. You see it in the baptism. I love that passage. We love the transfiguration. But there's a moment here, that, and it's, it's, it's a bit more earthy, isn't it? I mean, it's a little bit more gritty, and the people are there, and they see it. And they respond with this loud praise and rejoicing at who Jesus is. 
I think there's this mix of responses too, isn't there? They see who Jesus is and they respond in humility. They lay their cloaks down. We should respond in humility to who Jesus is, in repentance, in submission to him. Is Jesus reigning over every area of our lives? Have we submitted to him? Have we laid down everything for him? Are we, if Jesus came down the road, would you take your coat off and put it down on the ground for his donkey to walk over? Do you think you're too big for that? Are you sort of on equal plane with Jesus? And we've, we've got this wrong view of how exalted and how great he is. He is my friend, but he is my king. And so I should respond in worship to him, in adoration of all that he is. I should respond in joy at who Christ is. Do, do you respond in joy at the thought of Jesus as king? So, so often we have that wicked servant mentality, I don't want this guy to be king over me. Jesus reigning over you is the most glorious thing in the world. And it's the most joyful thing in the world to have Jesus as king. And so my hope is that we would respond with, with worship, with humility, with, with joy. That we would proclaim Jesus as king to, to the world so that they might see who he is. But I think the right response to this is, is just worship of who Jesus is. I, I, don't, I don't know that I can give you something real concrete exactly. Here's what you need to go home and do. Except just think about who King Jesus is. And let him be Lord over everything. There's been this push again in, in all throughout of, of, of Luke, where Luke's saying that Jesus is Lord. He is King and He's coming to Jerusalem. And that's who He is and He's revealed in all of His glory in this moment. Do we submit to Him as King? Do we worship Him? Do we rejoice at who He is? Are we so glad that we are His subjects and that we can serve Him? Praise God for the revelation. Praise God that Jesus has come to make peace in heaven and glory in the highest.